Today on the Gritty Leaders podcast, I'm joined by Ifti Nasser, CEO of Vested, the UK's most powerful equity management platform. Ifti grew up in Bradford, where his parents had immigrated after the Indian partition. One of his great inspirations had been his mother, who figured out how to run a corner shop with no experience, and she became an entrepreneur overnight. She managed to juggle making a home for Ifti and his eight siblings with running a shop. This family focus and entrepreneurial spirit has been carried into his leadership and the culture he's created invested. Ifti started his career at BP as a research chemist and progressed to the dizzy heights of vice president for group business development before he moved on to become CEO of SR Energy's E&P business. In 2014, he threw all his energy and a fair bit of his money to start up Vested. Ifti wanted to unlock the potential of equity and the ownership effect. I hope you're going to love this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Well, welcome to the Gritty Leaders podcast. Today, we're very lucky to have Ifti Nasser with us. Ifti has got an amazing background. He was in BP for 20 years, then CEO of SR Energy. But before I get into all that, and before he started to jump into being a, an entrepreneur, I want to discover what made Ifti. What's, what's the background? What's the inspiration? What are the things that got you to step out of the corporate world into this fast-paced, risky entrepreneurship that you did later in life than many people. So what were the big influences that started you in your life and made you the man you are, Ifti? Morning, Ian. I guess depends on how far back you want to start, but um, I guess my parents were immigrants into the UK, having been refugees following partition in India. So we didn't have much. We uh, were in a two up, two down. It was a big family, uh, nine kids, two parents, pretty meagre start. But I, I guess there was a lot of love, but not a lot of money. I think there were always arguments, discussions, shall we say, around uh, cash. And I think from a very early age, it was something that was important to me that that clearly is something that you need to have to avoid some of those arguments. So it was... Uh, uh, an aspiration to certainly have a degree of resources from that early stage. Mm-hmm. And actually, the journey as an entrepreneur started, or an aspirant entrepreneur, started uh, back in my teens when I used to buy sewing machines from old mills that were shutting down. And then even after uni, I had an idea that I wanted to build out, which was called computer-aided real estate. The notion of being able to have a terminal in a estate agents in one city and see a property in another city without having to get on a train to, to go between them. But uh, I couldn't get any funding for that. You know, it was a very different world. This is a long time ago, so there wasn't any notion of uh, support for entrepreneurs. But I, at the same time, I had an offer from BP, so I thought I'll go work with BP for a couple of years and then I will progress this uh, aspiration on my own. So you, you mentioned sewing machines and then technology. I can imagine, I think it was Bradford, wasn't it, where you indeed, yes. where you grew up. So I think I can understand the sewing machine started it because I think that part of uh, England especially had a sort of background in that. Where did the technology part come from for you? Because clearly with Vested, which we'll get on to later on, 
it's a technology platform. So did technology, was technology something early on that you were really interested in? Well, whether it was technology or solving problems, putting things together, I think is, uh, is where it came from. And I guess, yeah, as a, as a chemist, that's what you do. You put things together in different ways and new ways. You create something new. Right. So BP grabbed you. How did, they, how, did, how did you find BP? Was it one of the fairs where BP came around and you talked to them at university or, or, or was it something more? Well, it was a little bit different to that. I guess everybody in the BP chemicals world were either Oxbridge grads and or PhDs or postgrads. So to get into BP chemicals in whole was actually quite a coup from my perspective. But it was an amazing place to be, massive opportunities. They uh, helped me get my postgraduate uh, degree in marketing as well. So they gave me massive support, and that gave me the opportunity to move into the commercial world when we moved down to, to London to join BP Gas, as it was then, ahead of its joint, the joint venture that we started with Statoil and North Hydro uh, as the UK gas market was deregulating. Right. So you worked your way up in BP. You were there for 20 years, I think, weren't you? Yeah. So a long time in, in one organisation. I'm sure it went in a flash, as these things do when you look back. Um, what were the highlights for you? 20 years is a long time, but it was like a new adventure every two or three years. You know, you're from Hull to London, London to Jakarta, Jakarta to Aberdeen, Aberdeen to London, then out to Abu Dhabi. <laughs> And then off to Stanford, then back to London. It was a great adventure. And each of those uh, roles were very, very different, almost like moving to a new company, although you had a huge cadre and network that you'd already built up. But it was a brilliant adventure. Now, you mentioned Stanford in there. I know you went off to Stanford to do a management program, I believe. Tell me about that, because it's got a great reputation as a centre of excellence for you know, management programs and so on. And I read something you said to somebody, which was you'd first heard about the idea of the ownership effect when you went to Stanford. So was that the the sort of fledgling idea you had about Vested? I didn't have the idea of Vested back then. The whole notion of how powerful the ownership effect was, and it was something that um, yeah, it was just a tiny part of the program <laughs> they were on. It wasn't a material bit, but it was something that just logged in my mind. When I think back, you know, when I started with BP, even from the first uh, few months, you started getting shares in the business. And I know that I felt a relationship that I think it was intangible and I didn't know what this was. But even now, you know, I still hold BP shares for, for right or wrong, but yeah, it's such a strange sort of thing. But no, it, it was an idea that uh, grew in my mind from there, and it was only really put into to play when we started building Vested. It was part of the idea behind this little business, which was really supposed to be a, a learning opportunity for us as we uh, moved into a world that was totally different to the energy industry. Startups was very different, and the whole idea was to help startups. Yeah, that notion that I'd mentioned to you earlier about wanting to be an entrepreneur at the end of uni, not being able to get the, the funding, what I thought was, you know, I'll get to why I decided to move on from energy, but uh, was to start investing in early stage businesses and give that support to those thousands or hundreds of thousands of little ifties that weren't able to get the funding that they needed to get past go. Mm. 
So BP, I'm assuming they sponsored you to go to Stanford, yeah, which is great. Big organizations. I mean, I did some consulting in BP and I was very impressed with them years ago when I worked with them. Great. They looked after people. They pushed you a lot. They wanted their pound of flesh, but they gave a lot back as far as I could see. So you came back, you did Stanford, you came back to BP after that, I'm assuming, for a few years, worked your way up to Vice President Group Business Development. Yeah. So 20 years in BP, you're doing really well. You've made VP, which is uh, you know no small achievement in a company like BP. Why would you bail out at that point? What was the reason to go? I didn't bail out. <laughs> I guess uh, that last role gave me a lot of exposure into Asia. Uh, and it was in that role that I met a, a number of interesting folk. And it was one of those folk that offered me the opportunity to work with them. Yeah, it was uh, a business that we were actually planning to buy into from a BP perspective. Yeah, going back to that uh, heritage piece, you know, one of the things that I've always wanted to do is see how we could contribute to the progress of the, the subcontinent. And it was a really good friend of mine who where I mentioned that you know, these uh, Indian guys had offered me this opportunity or asked me to join them. And I thought, you know, why would I want to join you? I was you know, thinking about buying half your business uh, a few weeks back. But it was uh, my good friend, Robert Minsos, who actually said, you've always been wanting to help. If you really want to help, you need to be on the other side of the table. Understanding the Western energy companies and being able to support from the other side of the table and so i i decided to join sr wow and so tell me about sr what were you doing there sr was a uh, another great adventure I mean, it was uh, helping an indian company internationalize and uh, build a, a broader footprint for itself and links into international energy sector it was a big organization even at the time that i started and uh, across a whole range of industry sectors from energy, telecoms, steel. It's a classic Indian conglomerate. Brilliant individuals. You know, the Rias are very much a family-orientated business, and when you join a family business, it's a very different relationship. It was a great adventure. You know, as part of my time there, we bought assets in Kenya from Shell. We also bought the Stanlow refinery. There have been great opportunities for the SR group as well. So I think um, the Stanlow refinery is now the, the most profitable bit of that whole business. Wow. So you were there for, I think, almost six years as CEO of SR. And what made you move on from SR? Was it a negative from SR or was it a positive to, I'm going to go and do my own thing now, or was it something else completely? It, it wasn't a, a negative from SR at all. It was more a case of just reflecting on life. Mum and dad passed away within three months of each other back in 2012. It took me about a year to really think through how that really affected me. At the end of that year, I came to the decision that, yeah, I'm spending three weeks out of four a month you know, flying around the planet because the business that I looked after had assets from you know, Vietnam through to you know, Nigeria, uh, a lot in India as well. So I, I was away from home because after we'd moved out to Mumbai, the SR period was two phases. There was the Mumbai-based element as a family. And then uh, when we listed in London, uh, UK-based. 
but I was spending a lot of time with the assets I was looking after. Right. So, yeah, after mum and dad passed away, it just made me think, at what stage am I going to have enough money to get back and do that entrepreneurial thing that I wanted to do all those years ago? When am I going to stop being away from home so much? <laughs> uh, my oldest daughter, Sarah, was going to be heading off to university soon. I just felt it was time to build that relationship that will never get another opportunity to do. So it was a year after mum and dad passed away that I let the SR family know that uh, I was going to move. And it took about a year to leave properly. That was the reason for the move. And the notion, the notion at that point was that I would put some money to the side and invest in 10, 20 startups that maybe couldn't get the money. But in order to do that sensibly, I would have to build a business myself. Being a, you know, a very smart businessman, as, <laughs> as I thought I was, I thought, well, we'll put a quarter of a million to a side. And in two years, I'll have learned everything I need to learn about startups. And I will be uh, able to, uh, alongside those investments, bring more wisdom to the table. I guess it took a, a little bit longer to uh, get yeah, get to even cash flow break even, let alone <laughs> billions, and took 10 times the money from myself to build it. But so pleased that, that we have, because we've now helped many, many businesses, thousands of businesses to grow in a way that takes advantage of that ownership effect, because that's what Vested does. So when you, when you left and, you know, you explained that there was a sort of pivotal moment in your life and you were wanting to have more time with your family and traveling too much and, and sadly your parents had passed away and, and these things happen in our lives don't we and we, we reflect back and we sit and they're, they're useful in a way because they allow us to sort of hover above and look down and say what are we doing and where are we going you started off wanting to invest in other companies but did you start with a you know, sketch of what employee ownership might look like or the kind of bare bones invested? Or did that just, was that an iterative process where suddenly you thought, actually, I'm getting to something here that I could build a business around? Yeah, it was very much a, an iterative business. I guess there were two seeds, for want of a better phrase. You know, there was that whole notion of the ownership effect. There was all my years of work, whether it was SR or at, uh, at BP, that was buying and selling of assets and businesses. So equity was something that I understood reasonably well. And so it was picking up that whole old notion of when you're doing a startup, you have to have that relevance. You have to have something to bring to the table. So it was pulling those things together to do that learning exercise, as I said. But when we started Vested, the notion was basically to help startups. Mm -hmm. And it was to help startups who didn't necessarily have a lot of money, but they had this this currency, which was a stake in their business, and just make it possible for them to share that with those who help them build the business. Because it's that fundamental belief that, along with the ownership effect in terms of when you hold a stake in a business, what you bring to the table changes a very different relationship that you have with the business. But also, from a business perspective, where you have everybody vested in its success, the more people vested in the success holding your paper the more energy you'll have brought to, to the table. So the business model was to have as many people who are key to the success of the enterprise having a stake, that stake always being conditional, and that stake always being able to maximise the reward for the, the person who's contributing because they get it at the start of their journey. But if they don't deliver on what they promised, then there are mechanisms that we've created to, 
to pull that back. So, you know, today's businesses have a whole range of folk who are key to it. You know, obviously there's the investors. They will take equity in a certain format. There are employees. They will have equity in different formats, maybe options or others. And then there's all those other people who help a business succeed, whether it's the advisors, the NEDs, even strategic suppliers. There's a whole host of people. And what we try and do is create the structure and the mechanism to make each one of those different recipients of equity bought into the success of the business, getting them invested in the success, such that if they help and deliver that outcome, they get a real a real share of it. It's not transactional cash for a, a service or it becomes much, much deeper. Hmm. I know from working with all the businesses I do, especially when you get more senior in a business, I think people start to really focus on, well, what am I doing here? And how much am I really part of this business? And it becomes almost more emotional than rational. I've seen for many senior people in SMEs where they're looking at the business and saying, well, those two founders founded it maybe, or that founder founded it, but I've been here 20 years and I've done all the sales and I built it to this. And, you know, I don't feel I'm really an integral part of it because I've got no equity in it in any way, shape or form. Is I guess there's a real drive for that that fuels your business. There's two sides to that. Firstly, there are those people who want to have a stake in the enterprise because they're helping to build it. Why shouldn't they have a But I think the other side of it is that a lot of leaders are actually realising this. I mean, it's a a pathetically small percentage of the UK business uh, community that actually share equity with their teams or the the people who are key to the business. But I think during COVID in particular, it was interesting when we came out of COVID where people realised that all these people are working from home or away from the office yeah, they have 101 other marginal decisions to make each day. How do we help them get at least one or two of those in favour of the business? Mm-hmm. It was around making them realise that this this effect is real. And if they have some stake, they can see that actually, yeah, maybe I will just sort this out and go and watch Netflix or whatever. But uh, it's not always that tangible or that absolute, mm-hmm. but it's a, a, a notion that, yeah, that, ownership effect can just help in making those one or two decisions slightly differently to get things done or make that mm. contribution and as you know in you know, success and failure in business is you know on the margins a little bit of magic can help it fly a little bit of uh, magic missing will go the other way so you know the ownership effect is just one of those multitude of things that you need or that a founder or a business leader can use to help move his business forward. But, you know, it's no surprise that you know, people will wonder, you know, why should I bust a gut to help Ian become a millionaire or a billionaire <laughs> if there's actually nothing beyond this salary, this transaction yeah. for me? So it's a really powerful tool, and I guess we're just trying to inspire more and more people to use it. It will mean better businesses. Well, quite, absolutely, and I, I completely get it and buy into it and all the SMEs which I work in now I can see how they make such a difference when you've got these sorts of schemes in there but tell me going back to you know you you start a business you've got a few people in a room or scattered around the country remotely you've all got a passion for it you've got some shared values you probably haven't written them down yet you've got a vision about where you want to be 
How did you start to scale it? What were the key things that that you knew you were doing right and wrong? And how did you get off the ground? Because as we know, most businesses that start, great ideas, you know, they've got a bit of backing, they've got a bit of money, but most businesses sadly fail to get off the ground. What were the key things that you would now look back on and say, these were the few things we did really well that allowed us to scale this business? I would say the first one was realizing when a business model wasn't working. So when we started off, as I mentioned, the whole notion was equity for expertise. So it's a marketplace. Uh, The platform would help you find people who were going to support your business, bring their knowledge, experience to the table to help businesses that couldn't necessarily or wouldn't necessarily be able to afford them or that skill set or that experience but that marketplace model would have taken a lot more time to build and certainly a lot lot more in terms of funds and it was you know having already put half a million into the business as it were at that stage that awakening in the at the christmas of 2016 just realizing that this was going to be a tough gig and taking the decision to essentially pivot and move to just supporting one side of the platform because we'd learned a lot en route to to that Christmas of 2016 and we'd built up a lot of uh, capability. We'd we'd already built a small team. Uh, We'd already got the regulation behind us, the FCA authorization and regulation that gave us that ability to arrange deals in shares and safeguard so we decided to focus on one side of that marketplace uh, and actually convert from a marketplace proposition to a SaaS software as a service business and support businesses to deploy equity to all the people who were key to their success. Again, we started with smaller businesses, but uh, given what you just said about the usual uh, life span, it felt important to move into the SME space, which we then duly did. But because of that solidity and that resource that we were able to build in, so, you know, didn't take any money out of the business, we just carried on plowing everything back in. We've been able to now build up a capability that can serve those smaller businesses at a r- remarkably low cost, but give them capabilities that they would have never been able to access before with this um, sort of uh, support. And we did take on a small amount of external investment from some uh, friends, shall we say, uh, friendly angels. But that was just in the summer of uh, 2021, just to see if we could move a little bit, help us move a little bit faster rather than needing the... Mm-hmm. So a couple of things there. You said knowing when to pivot and not to keep going in one direction. Yeah. You know, looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, this isn't working, Let's let's pivot a bit more over here. And knowing who your customers are and focusing very much on uh, the base that which you're going to build from. Absolutely. I think it took us close to a year to get what we felt was product market fit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, although we we came into 2017 having to get the, the little team that we had to reposition and essentially rebuild the platform from, a, from the start, and we managed to get our first business paying customers onto the platform by the end of the summer of 2017. So it was quite a material pivot, but a reasonably fast one from our perspective anyway. And I guess since that, uh, when we started, I guess, recording uh, revenues back in uh, September 2017, which is interesting because we're in September now, and month on month, 
every single month, including during COVID and even during the kerfuffle of the markets and the economy last year, every single month the business has grown. It's incredible from a personal perspective. I just feel quite a sense of achievement on behalf of the team and the people that we are serving. Absolutely. And refreshing myself this morning and going onto your website, as you just said, the pricing makes it very appealing for the smallest of businesses to look at what you're offering. And it it reminded me of somebody we both know well, Jonathan, who ran Breathe HR and the sort of SaaS system he built up there. And I think one of the things that strikes me both about Breathe HR and especially about Vested is you can go on there and it's simple. You know, you've got wonderful videos of of how these things work if you're very visual and you want to hear people talk about it and you've got case studies and you've got very simple pricing models so getting that bit right is so important now in the world we live in where it's just over complicated for most people to access and know and you hear people in SMEs all the time saying it's this is really complicated where do I start what is EMI I don't you know get all this stuff but you've kind of demystified it for people I think thanks Ian thanks for that feedback and that's our continual objective you know at the end of the day what I'm trying to build and what we are as a business trying to build is something that is self-sustaining and has the ability to grow beyond what we do now. The only way it will do that is if it's successful in achieving the objectives of those who, who we serve and keeping it simple, taking away the cost and complexity that would normally be there. You know, as you said, you know, who knows what an EMI is, who knows what a growth share is or an unapproved option. You know, literally, folk can use all of these tools as easily as you know making the decision to you know bring Ian on as an advisor it it literally is that simple and yeah I mentioned earlier that we switched to what's known as a SaaS a a software as a service business but it's not a pure SaaS it's what we call a guided SaaS because with shares with equity you talk about legal docs you talk about tax etc so it is complicated so although the software and the platform does a lot for folk, we always have that reassurance and support for our customers uh, of the team, uh, the customer success team to support. So I want to just talk a little bit about culture because clearly reading about you and knowing you, you're a passionate individual who wanted to build something special for people. You're you're purpose-driven and you've explained that so far. But one of the things that people are struggling with now is that after COVID, Half their people or more started to work from home. Some businesses are struggling to get them back. Some businesses are struggling to know whether they should get them back, whether they can build a business going from home, whether they can have split cultures or however you might describe that. You seem to have worked this in a, in a great way. Tell us how it works invested. I think you've got about 70 people now remote, but you get together, you have retreats every year. You've got a lovely set of values, which are on your website about generosity, intuition and revolution, which I love. Three is a good number, of course. I'd love to know where they came from. Um, But tell me a bit about how you've built this culture and sustained it in a remote work environment. Well, going back to what we said earlier, it is very much evolutionary. So we started life in terms of a, a core business. I mean, Naveed and I started in this room just across the desk from from one another when we uh, uh, kicked the business off. But we took up residency in WeWork, a new business as it came into London back in 2015. We were 
one of the first tenants in that uh, building in Moorgate, which interestingly is just across the road from BP's old headquarters in Finsbury Circus. Real, real strange coincidence. <laughs> so we were there from 2015 through till a decision that I guess I made in 2018, which was about going remote. We had a bunch of folk, you know, people would come in from, you know, Croydon, from Richmond, from wherever. Mm-hmm. They'd spend the best part of an hour, hour and a half coming in. The developers, Arthur and Dave, would sit there with their headphones on, looking at their screens. If you wanted to have a meeting, you'd have to go out. Mm. It, it just seemed quite strange that we all had to just come into this place to be able to, to work. We were all on computers anyway. Uh, and given that um, I'd come from a world where, you know, I had teams around the planet, uh, and was able to coordinate and work with them effectively remotely. We decided initially to move to a, a philosophy of remote first back in 2018 and slowly decrease the amount of time that we, we spent in the office and reduce the size of the office, for that matter, down to you know, just having a, a couple of spaces that, um, that we work, but then we could use the facilities as and when we wanted to do retros, etc. We gave in our, our notice to, to WeWork February 2020, which is uh, an interesting coincidence uh, given what happened the, the following month. Yeah. By that stage, we'd pretty much gone fully remote anyway. And by remote, and you talk about the, the sorts of things that we do together, keeping that connection within the, the team, within the business is absolutely key. To know one another, to work, to collaborate is absolutely essential for our, our success. Uh, and, and this has been an evolution, but we have stand-ups every Friday and Monday, half an hour, just to be able to connect across the business, break out small rooms randomly, and just get to talk to people as humans on a one-to-one basis. Mm-hmm. We have retros every two weeks. One two-week loop is uh, within the teams because they themselves are now quite significant in size for a video call type setup. And then every other, every subsequent two weeks, we have it as a as a business, understanding where the business is going, updates from each of the teams, but then also giving everybody in the the business the opportunity to contribute to things that are challenges issues things that are slowing us down things that could help us move faster uh, and having that open conversation we have uh, anonymous polling uh, using the hr tool that we have that allows us to get feedback from how the team is feeling or range of different uh, questions as you can imagine each week week and a half you can put out a different uh, question and get that feedback and it's brilliant to be able to share those results transparently so everybody knows you know how, how the organization is feeling and we're very transparent on how we how we're doing as a, as a business so that people can contribute to that know where the challenges are know where the opportunities are and work towards that Mm-hmm. But then also, as you mentioned, we have two retreats each year. It started off uh, with everybody getting together twice. But as we got bigger, it became more difficult. And for the first time last year, we decided to do one full business gathering, uh, which includes everybody from wherever they are. And, and now we have people well beyond the UK. We have people in a couple of European countries, out in India, uh, as well as you know, across the UK from Northern Ireland to Scotland to you know, Exeter down in the southwest, you know, talent is not limited to London. 
Uh, and that's the, the brilliant thing. Once you've built a, a system that can work remotely, it's fantastic. Then we had uh, everybody come together in London last May. This May, we had everybody up in Manchester. Easy to get to from wherever you are. Mm. Brilliant uh, time together. Again, last November, we decided to do these regional things. So Simon, our COO, and I will go around each of the regions. So we had uh, an event in Edinburgh, Manchester, uh, Worcester, and London last year, plus Mumbai. So traveling around uh, and having those little clusters of folk who are not necessarily in the same working group, but geographically co-located, just creates a different dynamic. It's really powerful. It's brilliant, actually. Wow. It's lovely to hear because, you know, it is one of those big things people really... You know, the press is wondering what on earth is going to go on and, and, and SMEs are struggling. But it's great to hear somebody who's made it really work. Somebody else we know who have interviewed on the podcast, Patrick Luana in Endreams. He's made that work with his teams as well around the world. So you can do it, guys, if you're listening. It is possible to create great culture like this. Remote has just opened up so many opportunities for us. I think there's a, a, a big conversation about hybrid as well. I think personally, I think there's a challenge with that because hmm. those who do go into the office will end up with different relationships to those who don't. And so you end up with a, almost a, like a two-tier uh, organization at best. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That is a real challenge. And just because uh, I'm interested personally, the three values, did they come out of your head? Were they created by the leadership team? Did they come out of the whole business? They're lovely values of generosity, which is beautiful. Intuition, I find that really interesting. And also revolution, which talks about, you know, challenging what we've got and, and, and looking towards the future. I, I, I love the three of them. They go nicely together. How did they come about? I guess they, they came through the work that we were doing around branding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was uh, input from broad business across the business input yeah uh, and then more are values that we wish to reflect externally and how we want to treat our work with our our customers and the movement that we're trying to make the revolution is around that that movement about changing the mindset mm-hmm. in people you know it's not just the founders mm. or the cash investors who are the other a stake in the enterprise it's it's everybody who makes it work and just making that possible. But we also have uh, some internal values that we work to as well and reward. Every month when we have our company retros that I mentioned, we will celebrate uh, within the team all those folk who, who reflect these above and beyond. So there's trust, collaboration, autonomy, purpose, recognition, and diligence. Six is a big number for <laughs> these sorts of things, but I think they all reflect certainly how we work as a remote business we have to trust one another yeah uh, we're not we're not the sort of organization that you know is micromanaging has any inclination to or any desire to collaboration we have to work together to have the success nobody is uh, in of themselves going to make this business autonomy you're away from the there is no office so you have to take responsibility for what you're doing mm. yourself and you have to be able to work in your own space at your own pace to a degree but you know without somebody else so watching over you the purpose bit is also important because and this is a deep held view for myself as well unless you think that what you're doing is worthy of your time and endeavor you shouldn't be doing it you should buy into the notion 
of the ownership effect and you know helping everybody participate in the businesses otherwise maybe you should be doing something else mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i love it because we're working with the equity in the company's business tax related matters etc mm. diligence is absolutely key taking responsibility for the people you serve and just recognizing one another mm. Gives you a nice structure for recruiting people to the business, doesn't it? Because you know that if you think, and it's always a little bit difficult when you're recruiting to know exactly what people are like, but I can imagine that if you get your values right, they give you a really good structure, which to think, is this person going to fit? Yeah, and we share those with with folk right at the start um, when we're having interviews. Mm, yeah. So what about the future? Of Vested. Where's Vested going to be in five, ten years? What's the vision for it now? Uh, what's the vision for Vested? Uh, so many opportunities out there. The world, as I said, is still, you know, if we think the UK is uh, short on uh, deploying the ownership effect, the, the rest of the world is uh, a long way behind. So there are great opportunities out there. I think the key for us is making sure that what we do here in the UK is absolutely best in class and stays best in class uh, as it currently is and being able to take that knowledge and learning beyond the UK because as I say that there is a, a massive opportunity out there there are people you know, who've uh, stepped into this space as well when we started there was nobody else that's becoming quite populated because I think people see the value of what's what's going on but it's uh, part of the challenge to stay ahead of the game certainly in the quality and capability that we're building so you mentioned going back to that seminal moment when you decided to spend more time with your family and just focus more on your world, really, than, than perhaps climbing the corporate ladder. What do you do now to relax and chill out a bit? Because, uh, you know, it's, there are stresses and strains of building a business from, from scratch. Without question. And I, I would argue that I probably work harder now than I ever <laughs> in, my, uh, in my time, whether it was while I was prancing around the planet. It's a very different responsibility because it, it is literally the book stops here. All those folk that you've brought into the business – your responsibility is towards them and their mm. families and their livelihoods uh, and also those clients and customers that you've brought on. They are the responsibility that you have chosen to hold. So I'm not sure I spend that much more time with family, even though that may have been the aspiration. But I have been around more for some of those key moments. But when you've got four kids and all of them uh, – you know, over this time have either gone to university, gone out of university or gone beyond. Mm. There's enough to keep you, you busy from that. But I, you know, I get up on a morning, yeah, I do a 5K run up Richmond Hill uh, each morning and that just helps you clear your mind and just freshen yourself ahead of the day. Wonderful. Family man shines through there, FD, which is lovely to hear. And uh, yeah, I'm reading a great book at the moment called Outlive about how to have the best quality of life in your old age. And probably the key thing this great uh, ex-cancer surgeon talks about in the book is uh, the uh, effect of exercise on everything we do. So the 5K is uh, a great thing to be doing in the morning. So final question for you before we wrap up which uh, we ask, not everyone, but most people we get on the podcast, we ask this question to, which is, who would be the gritty leader you most admire in the world? You know, you've, you've traveled the world, so you've, um, you're, you're widely read, you've traveled the world, alive or dead, famous or not famous. Who, who would be the gritty leader you'd, you'd look at and say, yeah, I've learned a bit from them? Yeah, I guess I've learned a lot 
from them. And I guess it goes back to that inspiration uh, around the subcontinent. Uh, I guess you've probably heard this one a hundred times, but it's Mahatma Gandhi. I mean, Dad was a, a follow of his uh, as a youth. The whole um, movement of an independent India was something he very much followed. I mean, the fact that it ended up as a disintegrated subcontinent as a consequence of a whole host of geopolitics that went behind that. But um, I think the way in which he held himself, no leader is absolutely perfect. And I know that you know, there's lots of stuff that certainly casts some shadows on on him in hindsight, but I think in terms of what he, he achieved and the way he achieved it, I think uh, very inspirational. A great choice. And it's fascinating to hear who people do choose, um, from the scoutmaster to the football coach to Mahatma Gandhi. So, you know, we hear it all on Gritty Leaders Podcast. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Ifti. Your passion shines through, your energy shines through. And I wish you all the best in the family and with growing vested in the future. Thank you very much, Ian. Thank you for having me.